We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all of these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. From boosted parlays to live in-game offs on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit wynnbet.com to start winning. And away we go. Episode 198 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Wednesday, December 1st, 2021. We are rapidly closing in on episode 200 of the pod as a new month has begun. Will this month be as good as the last month was for the Washington football team? Washington went 3-0 and in November. What will the team's record be in this month of December? Uh, we have a lot to get to on this Wednesday installment of the podcast. I hope that everyone caught up on their sleep off the late night that we had on Monday night when Washington beat the Seattle Seahawks 17-15 at FedEx Field on Monday Night Football. Although perhaps you had trouble sleeping on Tuesday off the news that Robert Griffin III has a book. Yes, have you heard about this? RG3 coming out with a book called Surviving Washington. Uh, the book, per Simon & Schuster, is, quote, a one-of-a-kind explosive tell-all from former franchise savior Robert Griffin III detailing the shocking mismanagement and toxic culture within the most dysfunctional professional football team in America, end quote. Well, doesn't that sound nice? RG3 trashing the team currently known as the Washington football team. This is the same RG3 who, in September said that he would love to play for Washington again. Uh, Robert went on the Adam Schefter podcast and said that, quote, would I be open to it? Yeah, I would love to go back and be able to have that come full circle. But am I begging for that or pleading for that? Nah. But if your guy goes down, make the call, end quote. So we've gone from that to now Robert coming out with a tell-all book in which he slams 
the organization. Look, I'm not saying that the organization doesn't deserve to be slammed for a number of things, but forgive me for not shedding any tears for Robert Griffin III. I mean, the title of the book says it all, Surviving Washington. Oh, I had to survive Washington. Washington was so mean to me, so difficult for me. How, oh how, did I ever survive Washington? Uh, We'll see what Robert actually says in the book. I mean, uh, my concern is that Robert, again, is playing the victim card, but we'll see. We'll see. I tell you what, brilliant marketing job announcing this book the day after a big win for Washington on Monday Night Football. That was smart. That was very intelligent. Well, uh, we're all in the process, I guess, of surviving Washington. But on this installment of the podcast, we will be discussing Washington, uh, specifically two major aspects of the current three-game winning streak. Washington destroying teams in the time of possession battles via Washington's running game and Washington's improved secondary. Uh, Ron Rivera, at his day after the game Zoom press conference on Tuesday afternoon, talked about both of these developments. Uh, These are significant developments, and so I will give you a proper deep dive on each development beginning next segment. Uh, I also will be getting into Washington's newest kicker, Brian Johnson. Uh, Not to be confused with ACDC's Brian Johnson, who has one of the greatest voices of all time. I'm not sure about this Brian Johnson's voice. I'm more concerned about whether this Brian Johnson can be a competent kicker for the W to the F to the T. Uh, Also on the show, a nightmare of a loss for the Capitals on Tuesday night. Caps have been terrific this season. They were not terrific on Tuesday night. Caps blew a 4-1 third period lead and a 5-4 loss at the Florida Panthers. The third period was the period from hell for the Caps. Wait till you hear some of the numbers. Virginia Tech has its new football head coach, Brent Pry. Who is he? How will he do? We shall discuss. We had Nationals and Orioles news on Tuesday night as the deadline for MLB teams to tender contracts to arbitration eligible players was on Tuesday night. And the Nats announced a free agent acquisition on Tuesday night. Uh, and I'll post game a win for Georgetown, although this was an also close victory for the Hoyas, a 91 83 win over Longwood at Capital One Arena on Tuesday night. Uh, you can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me. The Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Rich on what are the Washington football team's second half, third, and short fails in the win over the Seahawks. Writes Rich, in the third quarter, Taylor Heineke handed off to Antonio Gibson on a short third down. Looked like Heineke had plenty of room with which to run if he pulled the ball instead of handing it off. Hindsight is 50-50, I guess. Uh, Yes, Rich, great observation by you. And your observation is correct. And in fact, Ron Rivera on Tuesday morning during his appearance on 106.7 The Fan confirmed uh, your observation to be true because Ron was asked about whether Heineke should have pulled the football on the third and short fails in the second half on Monday night. And Ron essentially said yes regarding at least one of those third and short fails. So the play in question, I believe, is the second Antonio Gibson third and short fail in the third quarter. Washington's ninth offensive drive resulted in a third quarter three and out. Third snap of the drive, Antonio Gibson, a third and one shotgun read option run for no gain. And yes, uh, Taylor Heineke should have kept the football on that play. Again, uh, Ron Rivera confirmed that. You know, it's tricky determining which plays are actual read option plays because not every play that looks like 
a read option play is a read option play, and not every play that looks like a run pass option play, an RPO play, is an RPO play. The tell for read option plays is whether the edge defender is blocked. If the edge guy isn't blocked, then the play is a true read option play. If the edge guy is blocked, then the play is a read option looking play, but not necessarily a read option play. On the run that I just referenced, the edge guy was not blocked, so that does appear to have been a true read option play. And yes, Rich, hindsight, as Steve Spurrier once said, is 50-50. Yeah, hindsight's always 50-50. Thank you, ball coach. Uh, Email from Devin on the Washington football team's big win over the Seahawks and this podcast. Uh, Writes Devin, after the game, my 18-year-old son texted me and all he said was, and away we go. Then, as I dropped my 10 and 8-year-old sons off at school, they were a little tardy because they wanted to stay in the car to keep listening to the podcast as they got out of the car. They kept saying, November to remember. There you go, Devin. Uh, Thank you for the email. You clearly have three sons who are very smart and are, in fact, geniuses. Uh, That's now obvious, but I appreciate it very much, you guys listening. Uh, Email from Yano on something that I said late on Tuesday's show, episode 197, in my segment on Max Scherzer choosing to sign with the New York Mets, uh, writes Yano, I know you know a lot of TV and movie lines, parentheses, Seinfeld, etc., because you reference them a lot on your show. Near the end of Tuesday's podcast, when talking about the Nats and Max Scherzer, you said, Maxi Bubala, what happened uh, on Max's fleeing to the Mets? Did you take that Bubala quote from Die Hard? When that guy Ellis says Bubala to Hans Gruber, uh, I heard you say Bubala in that accented voice, and it reminded me of that scene, one of my favorite movies. Uh, thank you for the email, Yano. Uh, Die Hard is one of my favorite movies as well. All-time great movie. I actually watched a good bit of Die Hard for the first time in a long time at the beach this summer, and Hans Gruber, what a great heel. I mean, what, what an all-time heel Hans Gruber is in Die Hard. But anyway, uh, I did not say Bubala because of the line in that movie. I said Bubala because I say Bubala sometimes as a joke. Uh, I'm Catholic. I'm a goy. So I get a kick out of saying a word like Bubala. Uh, We have many Jewish friends and one of my dad's best friends calls people Bubala, uh, which always makes me laugh. I just think that's a great word. So I've incorporated Bubala uh, into my shtick over the years. Uh, The the guy, by the way, who says Bubala, he's actually a big Mets fan. So he's got to be thrilled about Max going to the Mets. My dad's a big Mets fan too. Both of my parents are from New York. I texted my dad about Max going to the Mets. My dad texted me back. uh, Max will be on the injured list 10 days after spring training. That right there is a window into the Mets fans thinking. Always expect the worst. And honestly, that's how we've been as Washington football team fans in some ways for years, but not right now. Right now, we are expecting, if not the best, then at least the better. Well, there's no better way to grow your business than with Imageworks. Uh, Imageworks is a full-service boutique web design, branding, and marketing company. Clients in the DMV and throughout the country trust Imageworks to deliver full-service, forward-thinking, and growth-accountable marketing services. If you want to grow your business, do business with Imageworks. I promise you, you won't regret it. From the forging of authentic brands and the development of engaging websites to the reeling in of new customers and the spreading of brand awareness, Imageworks creative minds are focused on one goal, 
your business success. Imageworks will help you find more customers, tell a story that positions you as a leader, increase conversions, plan your overall marketing strategy, nurture warm leads, and much more. But Imageworks is more than a branding and marketing firm. Imageworks is a one-stop digital shop with a complete team of in-house designers, marketers, developers, art directors, strategists, and writers. Imageworks thinks of you as a collaborative partner. Imageworks works best as an extension of your team, pitching ideas, thinking outside the box, and developing the strategy, branding, and marketing campaigns that'll take you from A to B. Put Imageworks to work for you by calling 703-378-0000 or by going to imageworkscreative.com and clicking on contact near the upper right corner. When you call or contact, make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast, because doing so will get you a free homepage search engine optimization and conversion review. That phone number again, 703-378-0000, or go to imageworkscreative.com and click on contact near the upper right corner and make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast. Imageworks, creative minds focused on one goal, your business success. All right, so the Washington football team has won three consecutive games. The Washington football team has gone from two and six to five and six. The Washington football team is in possession of the third wild card spot in the NFC, and the Washington football team is just two games behind the NFC East leading Dallas Cowboys. Do not discount the possibility of Washington winning the division. Uh, Washington has six regular season games left. The final five will be NFC East games. Washington's next game, though, is another game against an AFC team. Uh, Washington this season is 5-2 and two against NFC teams, but 0-4 against AFC teams. Washington will be at the 6-5 and five Las Vegas Raiders this Sunday afternoon at 4.05. And in case you're curious, Washington will not be flying out to Vegas until Saturday. So it's not like Washington is doing the thing that some East Coast teams will do when flying out to face a team out West, or some West teams will do when flying uh, toward or near the East Coast, and that is leave two days early. Uh, Washington will be flying out on Saturday for the Sunday game at Vegas. Uh, Washington football team insider J.P. Finley of NBC Sports Washington tweeted that out on Monday. Uh, Washington for this game at the Raiders will again have a new kicker this season. Uh, Washington on Tuesday afternoon did place Joey Sly on the reserve injured list and sign kicker Brian Johnson uh, off the Chicago Bears practice squad. Uh, Joey Sly in the 17-15 win over the Seattle Seahawks at FedEx Field on Monday Night Football connected on his lone field goal attempt, a 23-yarder in the first quarter, but Sly then suffered a hamstring injury late in the second quarter. Uh, seemed to suffer the injury on that Fukakta extra point attempt that followed Taylor Heineke's 10-yard touchdown pass to J.D. McKissick with 56 seconds left in the second quarter. Uh, That extra point attempt was blocked by Seahawks edge rusher Rasheem Green, who then returned the football for two points for the Seahawks to tie the game at nine. Joey Sly did engineer the ensuing kickoff, but he like crumbled to the turf and uh, he was done at that point. Washington went the rest of the game without attempting a field goal or an extra point. Could have cost Washington the game, right? Because Washington Deep into the fourth quarter, while up 17-9, had a fourth and goal at the three. Did not feel comfortable attempting the short field goal for a 29 lead, i.e. a two-possession lead. 
ended up failing on the fourth and goal at the three as a Taylor Heineke pass to Logan Thomas initially looked like a touchdown connection but ultimately was ruled as an incompletion as the ball hit the ground and Logan supposedly lost control of the football. Now, I brought up on Tuesday's show, episode 197, well, why couldn't Tressway have just kicked the chip shot field goal to give Washington the two-score lead, to give Washington that 29 advantage? Uh, well, Tressway is a left-footed punter, and the belief is that that, in fact, would have thrown things off to where uh, Washington would have had a botched field goal operation, that the holder would not have been comfortable uh, holding for a kicker who is left-footed as opposed to having held for kickers who are right-footed. I mean, I don't know. You'd like to think that it's not that big of an adjustment. I'm not trying to make it out to be nothing, but geez, I mean, to have Tressway come on to kick a 21-yard field goal, I mean, is that that big of an ask? Uh, but I tell you what, shame on Washington for not having an emergency plan at kicker, okay? Like, you know that your only true kicker on the active roster is Joey Sly. Do you not, in the back of your mind, if you're Ron Rivera, say to yourself, what if a worst-case scenario happens and Joey Sly gets hurt during a game? Then what? What will we do? The fact that Washington did not have a contingency plan uh, I think is a bad look. Washington's got to be better than that. So hopefully for this next game, uh, Washington at least has Tressway and the field goal operation prepared enough to where if Brian Johnson gets injured during the game, Tressway is capable of hitting at the very least, you know, a chip shot field goal, an extra point. I mean, no one's expecting Tressway to come out and kick a 63-yard field goal, okay? But geez, I mean, to be able to kick a 21-yard chip shot for a 29 lead, I mean, you really should have someone else on your roster behind your true kicker who can do something like that. Uh, Brian Johnson, he now becomes kicker number four for Washington this season, right? We went from Dustin Hopkins to Chris Blewett to Joey Sly to now Brian Johnson. Uh, he kicked collegiately at Virginia Tech, as did Sly. Uh, Brian Johnson was a kicker for the Hokies from 2017 through 2020. Brian Johnson was signed by the Chicago Bears as an undrafted free agent in May 2021, was signed by Washington during what was his second stint on the Bears practice squad. Uh, Johnson, in between those stints, kicked for the New Orleans Saints this season. Saints signed Johnson off the Bears practice squad in October. Johnson, over four games with the Saints, went 8 of 8 on field goals, including connecting on a 52-yard field goal in a 27-25 Saints home loss to the Atlanta Falcons in Week 9. But Johnson, over his four games with the Saints, also went just 5 of 8 on extra points. So go figure. 8 of 8 on field goals, including a 52-yarder, but just 5 of 8 on extra points. So we shall see what Brian Johnson provides as Washington kicker. Raise your hand if you think Brian Johnson will be the last man to kick for Washington this season. This just feels like one of those years in which Washington is going to wind up having used, you know, five, maybe even six kickers during the regular season. But even with the instability at kicker, Washington finds itself now at five and six. Washington finds itself having one, three, consecutive games. And to me, nothing from Washington's three-game winning streak has been more of a whopper than the extent to which Washington is bludgeoning teams in time of possession. Uh, Washington, in its 29-19 win over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in Week 10, won the time of possession battle by 18 minutes, 16 seconds. Washington, in its 27-21 win, at the Carolina Panthers in week 11, won the time of possession battle by 11 minutes, 46 seconds. 
and Washington in its win over the Seahawks at FedEx Field on Monday Night Football in Week 12, won the time of possession battle by 23 minutes, 20 seconds. Yes, 23 minutes, 20 seconds. Washington's time of possession for the game was 41 minutes, 40 seconds. There are 60 minutes in a regulation NFL football game, right? 15 minutes per quarter. There are 60 minutes in an NFL game in regulation. Washington on Monday night had a time of possession of 41 minutes, 40 seconds. That was the franchise's highest time of possession total in a regular season game since November 4th, 1990. Yes, 30 plus years. You have to go back for the last time Washington obliterated an opposing team in time of possession the way that Washington obliterated the Seahawks in time of possession on Monday night. Now, November 4th, 1990, if you are a longtime Washington fan, that date stands out to you. Uh, November 4th, 1990 was a day on which Washington had a 41-38 overtime win at the Detroit Lions. And that's actually a famous game. So first of all, Washington in the game had a time of possession of 49 minutes, 52 seconds. Again, though, this was an overtime game, but that game was a game in which Washington overcame a 35-14 third quarter deficit. But again, you got to go back to November 1990 for the last time Washington did as it did from a time of possession standpoint uh, as Washington did on Monday night. But that was something else, right? Washington smashing the Seahawks in the time of possession battle by 23 minutes, 20 seconds. And of course, a big part of Washington doing so well in time of possession lately is the running game, especially Antonio Gibson. Uh, Gibson in the win over the Seahawks, 29 carries for 111 yards and seven receptions for 35 yards on seven targets and playing on 68% of Washington's offensive snaps. Now, this was not a game in which Gibson had a sky-high yards per carry. Uh, He finished the game with a yards per carry of 3.83. But the story of Antonio Gibson's season isn't just about yards per carry. Uh, Gibson this season, 183 carries for 712 yards and five touchdowns. His yards per carry for the season is just 3.89. That's really not that good. But Gibson this season also is number 11 among qualified running backs in the NFL in success rate for football outsiders at 54%. Success rate is, to me, a better way of judging a running back than yards per carry is. Uh, Football outsiders defines success rate for a running back as the percentage of carries on which a running back gains 40% of needed yards for a first down on first down, 60% of needed yards for a first down on second down, and 100% of needed yards for a first down on third and fourth down. So the idea is how successful are you in terms of attaining a first down on a per carry basis? Uh, A running back with a success rate of above 50% is considered to be very consistent. Gibson's success rate this season is 54%. That's quite good. Uh, For comparison's sake, Cleveland Browns running back Nick Chubb, who we all would agree is really good, uh, is number 12 among qualified running backs per football outsiders in success rates. So Gibson, number 11, Chubb, number 12. Uh, Chubb has a success rate of 53%. So Gibson has been more productive than his yards per carry 
would suggest. He also has been dealing with this shin ailment and yet to me has been running with a physicality that has been really impressive. And Gibson, remember, is a converted receiver. Like, don't forget that. He's still learning the position of running back. So I think there's a lot to like from Antonio Gibson this season. The problem for Gibson this season has been the fumbling, but he did not fumble on Monday night. But going back to Washington thrashing teams in time of possession during the three-game winning streak, Antonio Gibson has totaled 72 carries during Washington's three-game winning streak. Uh, Ron Rivera did a day after the game Zoom press conference on Tuesday afternoon. Here was Ron on what has allowed Washington to commit more to the running game during the three-game winning streak. Well, I think, again, going back and, and, and looking at what we did a couple of weeks before we went on to the bye, and then the, 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 the stuff we looked at during the bye and just felt that there were some things that we could do and we, and, and we felt we could do well. One of them was running the ball. We felt the running with the ball would help our play-action game, which it has even more so. Um, so it really makes for an effective um, um, one-two punch as far as the offense is concerned. I think also Antonio's growth and development has, has really started to, 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 to come through. You know, I think uh, Coach Jordan and Coach King are, are doing an excellent job with, with the young man and, and with that group for a whole. I mean, I, I like what Jared Patterson's doing. He just hasn't got a lot of opportunities. And, and as I said earlier, you know, J.D. McKissick is just a, you know, it's a big part of what we do. And, and he's, a, he's a young man that, you know, is, is, is showing that when he gets a chance to touch the ball, he can make something happen. Yes, he can. Uh, J.D. McKissick in the win over the Seahawks. Seven carries for 30 yards and a touchdown. Five receptions for 26 yards and a touchdown on five targets in playing on just 39% of Washington's offensive snaps. That's pretty good production for playing on just 39% of your team's offensive snaps. Now, of course, McKissick was the victim of a frightening moment on Monday night, but he thankfully appears to be okay. So on Washington's 11th offensive drive, the one that resulted in the fourth quarter turnover on downs, 12th snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke, third and 12, eight-yard shotgun completion to J.D. McKissick, but McKissick got injured on the play, and it was scary, right? I mean, McKissick lay on the field for multiple minutes, was stretchered off the field, but he thankfully was sitting up on the stretcher, and McKissick on Tuesday did tweet that he's good and included the hashtag, uh, we call God last night. So terrific news there that J.D. McKissick appears to be fine. Now, I don't know that that guarantees anything in terms of him being available to play at the Raiders on Sunday afternoon, but you know what? McKissick being available to play at the Raiders on Sunday afternoon would seem to be at least a possibility. But regarding Washington running the ball so much during the team's three-game winning streak, there's very much a chicken and egg thing going on here. People keep saying in writing that a big reason, maybe the biggest reason that Washington has won three consecutive games is that the team is running the ball more. Uh, That's not true. Uh, That is what we like to call fake news, okay? Uh, It goes like this. The reason that Washington is running the ball more is that Washington is playing with leads. When you have the lead, you call more running plays because you're trying to kill clock. Now, that doesn't mean that Washington's running game during the three-game winning streak hasn't been productive. The running game has been productive in a lot of ways. But this does mean that this idea that Washington running the ball so much is the cause of the three-game winning streak is wrong. Washington running the ball so much lately is, in essence, a result of the three-game winning streak, not the cause of the three-game 
winning streak. It's correlation versus causation. Uh, Washington, during its 2-6 and six start to the season, barely ever played with a lead. Washington, during the three-game winning streak, has been playing with a lead a lot, uh, thanks in large part to the improved play of Taylor Heineke and the improved play of Washington's defense. So I do think that this is an important point, and it goes against a lot of what you're hearing and reading right now. Washington running the ball so much lately is, in essence, a result of the three-game winning streak, not the cause of the three-game winning streak. This isn't a perfect analogy, but if I said to you, well, you know, all rich people have mansions, so if I buy a mansion, that'll make me rich. No, it doesn't work that way. You become rich, and then that allows you to buy a mansion. Having a mansion doesn't make you rich. Being rich allows you to buy a mansion. That's kind of the way it works here in terms of running the football so much during a stretch of victories. But no doubt, Washington running the ball has been a major feature of the three-game winning streak. With the NFL having become so much more of a passing league over the last, say, 20 years Does Ron Rivera believe that relying on the running game is a sustainable and reliable way to win? Ron, on Tuesday, answered that question. Yes, I do. You know, it's interesting because if you go back and you look at the um, statistics, who wins the Super Bowl and and how do they win it, it all points to the yards rushing. You know, sure, you may set it up by throwing the ball, but at the end of the day, you grind it out. Um, and I still think that 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 holds true. If you look at the statistics, I don't, you know, that the numbers don't lie as far as that's concerned. Um, there is a physicality, a mentality to it. Um, if you can throw the ball well, and 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 yet at the same time still be able to keep that run game going, I think if you come up against a team that all they do is rely on the throw, you know, the the passing game, you have a chance, I think, to win and win big. And the reason being so is you can grind it out. You know, we've been very fortunate the last few times we've, we've, we've controlled the time of possession. And by doing so, we've kept some very dynamic quarterbacks off the field, thank goodness. And by doing that, it gives us a chance and an opportunity to win. Um, and I think it's something that, you know, it goes back to all the way to my time, you know, when I was with Andy, when I was with Coach Reed, you know, for everything everybody talked about, we threw, we threw, we threw. We still had a very dynamic running game, you know, and, and then go to, to – uh, to Chicago with Coach Smith, and we did the same thing. That Super Bowl year, we ran the ball well. I go to San Diego, and I'm with Norv, and one of the things that Coach Turner used to always talk about was, you know, some of Phillip Rivers' best passing games, uh, he only threw for 200 yards, but they were very important yards. They were, they were, they were yards that were, you know, that offset the running game when we rushed for over 200 yards. You know, we had LaDainian Tomlinson back then, and, you know, it was a great one-two punch. Well, we're starting to see a little bit of that. So I can see us continue to stick with it and, and work on it, you know, but uh, it's all predicated really on, on, on what Scott and the offensive coaches see as to how we should attack our opponents. Yes, and that is 100% the way to do offense in the NFL. You should be open to doing everything. It's not about whether you are a passing team or a running team. It's not about your offensive identity It's about you on a game-in, game-out basis being able to do whatever works best against your opponent. That's what truly great offensive teams do. For the record, Washington through Week 12 for Football Outsiders DVOA metric is 13th in the NFL in passing offense and just 25th in the NFL 
in rushing offense. Yeah, Washington per DVOA actually has been much better at passing than running this season. Uh, Here was Ron on Tuesday on the keys to Washington's running game having been successful during this three-game winning streak. Well, I mean, you look at, at, at how well the offensive line has played together. I know it's a unit that's kind of been bumped up a little bit, bruised up a little bit. But they come to work every day, and they work hard. Um, you look at what they do as far as uh, practice and watch the way they practice. Um, you know, you can just tell. And it's one of the things I talked about yesterday was how these guys have come, and, and they, they come to work every day. And, and the only way to continue to develop is to practice the right way. Yeah, Washington's offensive line has been great this season, especially when factoring in all of the injuries. Uh, Samuel Cosme, now on the reserve injured list due to a hip injury. This off him having just missed four games due to an ankle injury. Uh, Washington in the win over the Seahawks was down to its fourth string center in Keith Ismail, thanks to Chase Roulier being on the reserve injured list due to a fractured left fibula and potentially ligament damage to his left ankle. Tyler Larson being inactive due to a knee injury and Wes Schweitzer dealing with an ankle injury. And yet, and yet, Washington's offensive line has been great so far this season. Washington through week 12 is number three in the NFL in ESPN's team pass block win rate metric at 67% and is number one in the NFL in ESPN's team run block win rate metric at 77%. And so we have this three-game winning streak and the continued throwing of the rock. Are you aware of the rock? Uh, Not the rock, Dwayne Johnson, the rock, as in a physical rock. Uh, A physical rock has become a symbol for the Washington football team during this three-game winning streak, so much so that a tradition now is someone chucking a rock at the whiteboard in Washington's locker room after a win. Uh, These great videos that the Washington football team has been putting out after recent victories, these locker room celebration videos, they're including someone chucking a rock at the whiteboard in Washington's locker room. Rod Rivera on Tuesday on The Rock. I think the thing that we all have to look at is as far as the David and Goliath is is really, it's a little bit broader than just that. Um, You know, one of the things that we we talked about when, when, when I introduced it, first introduced it, and, and it came, you know, and, and honestly, I, I've been kind of saving it for the next time we faced Tampa. Um, and I knew it would, you know, because pretty much nobody gave us a chance. And, and so I thought it was the perfect opportunity to bring it out. Um, and the players bought into it. And they, they, they see it. Uh, they recognize it. Um, one of the things that, that I told them, if you remember anything from this, it's that basically uh, for every question, there's an answer. For every problem, there is a solution. For every Goliath, there's a David. And for every giant, there's a stone. And we've stuck to that. And it's a little bit of a mantra, but that's okay. You know, as long as they, they get it and understand it, um, it's been a very viable thing for us. And, and the players have handled it very well. Uh, it's kind of cool because the um, – the hype video that we show them every week, there is a connection to it. Um, and then the post-game celebration has been a little bit like that as well. And uh, it's gone. It, it, it's, it's something that, you know, that we have to continue to cultivate. And, and I'm going to use going forward because I, I think it's something that these guys resonate very well with. 
So there you go, the explanation of The Rock. For every question, there's an answer. For every problem, there's a solution. For every Goliath, there's a David. For every giant, there's a stone. I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, and when it came to the postgame locker room celebration after the win over the Seahawks, Ron was especially fired up. You know, Taylor Heineke did the honors of throwing The Rock at the whiteboard on Monday night. But Ron was all kinds of fired up, was cussing up a storm. It was great. We had fun with that on Tuesday's show, episode 197. Ron on Tuesday on why he seemed especially fired up after Monday night's win over the Seahawks. I I love our resilience. I really do. And I I got a lot of respect for the way our guys have handled it because there's been a lot of adversity. There's been a lot of adversity circling us since I got here. And a lot of it, we have nothing to do with it. And that's the hard part. You know, we're just kind of caught up in the middle of it. Um, And to be honest with you, I was, I was really excited for the fans that were there. And I'd love to see if we can continue to win and get on a roll and get the other folks that, uh, that are, our, our Washington football team fans to come out because um, I, I know what it feels like to be in that stadium. I know what it feels like to be at RFK back in the day and, and to have 70,000 or 80,000 people there screaming and hollering and getting all whooped up. That to me is, 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 is what the ultimate goal here is. It's because if we can, you know, if we can get that kind of support, man, I mean, it, it was really cool last night. And, and, and honestly, that last quarter, you know, with that last drive, the, the, the things that went on, that, that felt like a, a, a packed house because of the energy. And, and that's what got me fired up. I mean, the energy was there. And, you know, I, I think that's, that's something that, you know, this team seems to thrive off of, too. Our players really do. I mean, I can feel it, um, you know, with, with the things that we're trying to do. And, and I was asked earlier about the David and Goliath. I mean, that's something that these guys resonate with. I can tell you they resonate uh, and and connect to when we have a lot of energy in the the stands. So hopefully we can we can continue to do that. Hopefully we can continue to get the fans coming out. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, Ron's right about the adversity that the Washington football team has faced this season and that the team has faced since Ron took over the team in January 2020. And look, some of the adversity is the fault of the team itself, but some of the adversity has had to do with things that have nothing to do with Ron, his coaching staff, and Washington's current players. But Washington, for now, is overcoming the adversity. The team isn't great, but what has happened over the last three games is great. And let us hope that Washington, somehow, some way, keeps this going. Up next, Much more on the Washington football team, a deep dive, the likes of which you will not get anywhere else on the most improved aspect of Washington's improved defense, the secondary. I'll get to that after this. Hey guys, Al Galdi here. Well, the Washington football team has won three consecutive games. Still plenty of time left in this Washington football team season to attend a game. And there's no need to exhaust yourself searching all over the internet to find Washington football team tickets. That's because TickPick, that's T-I-C-K-P-I-C-K, is the original no-fee ticket site and the only ticket site that you'll ever need as your go-to for all NFL tickets. You see, TickPick got rid of all of those awful service fees that the other ticket sites charge. This allows TickPick to guarantee the best prices on all 
of its NFL tickets. Don't believe this? Look, if you could find better prices for the same seats on another ticket site, TickPick will give you 110% of the difference in the purchase price. And so if you're looking to watch Washington live this season, get your tickets at TickPick.com slash Galdi to save $10 on your first order of Washington football team tickets. Whether you want to make the trip to Vegas to watch Washington play at the Raiders this Sunday or want to hit up any of Washington's five NFC East games over the final five weeks of the regular season, TickPick has you covered. Again, TickPick guarantees the best prices on all of its NFL tickets, no more of those ridiculous service fees. Visit TickPick.com slash Galdi right now to save $10 on your first order of Washington football team tickets. That's T-I-C-K-P-I-C-K dot com slash Galdi. That's TickPick.com slash Galdi. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. There are multiple reasons for why the Washington football team now has won three consecutive games, but you could certainly argue that the biggest reason is the improved play of Washington's defense. A Washington defense that was a giant flop over Washington's first eight games of the season has been so much better during this three-game winning streak. And there has been a lot to unpack with that, like, say, why and how the defense has played so well despite being without its top two edge rushers and Chase Young and Montez Sweat. Like, that really is amazing, isn't it, that Washington's three best defensive games of the season have been three games in which Chase Young has been out for most of the three games and Montez Sweat has been out for the entirety of all three games. Like, what does that say? But anyway, to me, the biggest reason that the defense has been so much better over these last three games is the improved play of Washington's secondary. The secondary was the biggest reason for Washington's defensive struggles in September and October. The improvement in the secondary was the biggest reason for Washington's defense being better in November. There's a lot going on with the secondary right now, and I wanted to do a segment exploring these things. So first of all, 
Washington's corners. Washington's top two corners, William Jackson III and Kendall Fuller, were big disappointments earlier this season. But each guy has been much better lately. And each guy has been at the forefront of the most obvious sign of Washington's improvement in the secondary third down defense. Washington in its 17-15 win over the Seattle Seahawks at FedEx Field on Monday Night Football held the Seahawks to just 4 of 12 on third downs. Washington, during its three-game winning streak, has allowed opponents to go just 10 of 31 on third downs. Washington, during its 2-6 and six start to the regular season, allowed opponents to go 65 of 115 on third downs. 56.52%. That is atrocious third down defense. And specifically with Kendall Fuller, he earned the second highest overall grade for Pro Football Focus for any Washington player in the win over the Seahawks. Kendall Fuller's overall grade for PFF for Monday night's game was 90.7. PFF grades are on a scale of 0 to 100. 90.7 is outstanding. Uh, This game for Fuller marked a fifth consecutive game in which he played mostly as an outside corner as opposed to a slot corner. So five consecutive games. That's a stretch that from Washington's perspective started with week seven. Fuller for Pro Football Focus over the last six NFL weeks, weeks seven through 12, has an overall grade for PFF of 80, week seven through 12, has an overall grade of 86.0. That ranks sixth among qualified corners in the NFL. Kendall Fuller for Pro Football Focus has been a top 10 corner in the NFL over the last six weeks. There's also this, the rise of Danny Johnson and at the expense of Benjamin St. Juice. So Benjamin St. Juice in the win over the Seahawks for a second consecutive game did not play on a single defensive snap. He did play on special team. He did play on special teams, but he did not play on a single defensive snap. Now, you may recall St. Juice was inactive for Washington's win over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in week, 10 due a, in week 10 due to a concussion. He then, in the win at the Carolina Panthers in week 11, very interestingly, did not play on any defensive snaps, though he did play on special teams. And I brought that up on the podcast last week of, well, if the reason that St. Juice didn't play on any defensive snaps was that he was coming off the concussion then why was he out there playing on special teams? And sure enough, we had the exact same scenario on Monday night. Benjamin St. Juice did not play on any Washington defensive snaps, but did play on special teams. Meantime, Danny Johnson, he in the win over the Seahawks, played on 49% of Washington's defensive snaps. So Washington signed Danny Johnson from the practice squad to the active roster on October 5th. Danny Johnson has been on Washington for a few seasons now, but Danny Johnson last season did not play on a single defensive snap for Washington. He went the entire regular season without playing on a defensive snap, and then he did not play on any defensive snaps in Washington's wildcard round loss to the Buccaneers at FedEx Field last January. So Danny Johnson entered this season having not played on a regular season defensive snap since December 2019. 
but he started playing quite a bit on defense for Washington this season, beginning with the loss at the Green Bay Packers in Week 7. And Danny Johnson's playing time percentages since Week 7 are 61, 23, 31, 27, and now 49. Ron Rivera at his day after the game Zoom press conference on Tuesday on Kendall Fuller playing more on the outside and Danny Johnson playing over Benjamin St. Juice. Well, as far as uh, Kendall's concerned, you know, um, the, the, the move basically was necessitated, obviously, because of the injuries that uh, Benjamin had. Uh, he's had a couple of, um, of injuries that is, uh, have sidelined him a couple of times. And in the meantime, we've moved Kendall in there, and, and Kendall's done a nice job. Uh, but Danny Johnson has really stepped up and played very well. So it's hard to make a move when you have a guy doing, um, you know, some really good things as far as Danny's concerned. And, you know, Kendall has really kind of settled in at the outside position right now. So we're just going to kind of ride this for a while, see how it goes. Um, but Benjamin is still a young man that's in our plans. I mean, we believe he's got a bright future. And it's just a, a matter of opportunities coming up again because it'll happen. It's just the way football is. Something's going to happen. So we'll see how that goes. But right now, it's just been very pleased with what we've gotten from, uh, from the guys that are on the field right now. Yeah, Don Ron loves himself some Danny Johnson over Benjamin St. Juice right now. You could say that Ron does not like the juice. You like the juice, eh? (laughs) Yeah, the juice is good, eh? No, Uh, Ron Rivera does not likey the juice. Uh, Ron used to likey the juice, but Ron no longer likey the juice. You like the juice, eh? No, Ron no longer likey the juice. So notable developments at corner in recent weeks with William Jackson III, Kendall Fuller, Danny Johnson, and Benjamin St. Juice. As for safety, uh, well, that starts with Landon Collins in terms of notable developments during this rise of Washington's secondary as a principal factor in the rise of Washington's defense. Uh, Landon in the win over the Seahawks, of course, had the great force fumble. Uh, Seahawks' fourth offensive drive, second snap of the drive on a Russell Wilson first and 10 shotgun play action completion to running back Alex Collins. Landon Collins did a great job of forcing a fumble that Cole Holcomb recovered as Landon, with his left hand, punched out the football from behind on Alex Collins. Uh, The ensuing Washington offensive drive resulted in Taylor Heineke's second and seven 10-yard shotgun touchdown pass to J.D. McKissick with 56 seconds left in the second quarter. Now, we know that Landon Collins really doesn't like his new role, uh, doesn't like that he's no longer being a pure safety. Uh, Personally, uh, I don't really care what Landon Collins likes or wants. Uh, He was struggling as a pure safety. Something needed to change. Something has changed, and the change has been for the better. Uh, Landon Collins is doing well in his new role as a combo safety linebacker, uh, in his new role playing what Ron Rivera calls the Buffalo Nickel, in uh, Landon's new role as, as Ron said during his postgame press conference late night on Monday night, a drop-down safety. Call the role whatever you want to call it, but the role is so much better suited for what Landon Collins is at this point as an NFL player. This was interesting to me. Ron Rivera on Tuesday on what moving Landon Collins to this new position has allowed Washington to do defensively. Well, really what we've done is we've put our playmakers on the field by doing that. You know, having Landon and, and Cam Curl um, and uh, and Bobby out there, 
the three of those guys are guys that are around the football that have opportunities to make plays. And it puts them all on the field at the same time. With Landon, it gives us an opportunity to take advantage of a skill set that I, I really appreciate. You know, something that, again, I've talked about, we did, we did in Carolina. Um, you know, we called it the Buffalo nickel position. Um, Shaq Thompson played that for us very, very well. And when you watch Landon, you watch his productivity over those last few weeks and what he's done and, and how he's impacting games. That's pretty special. So, you know, we're going to continue with it. I know he, uh, he fights it. But, uh, you know, he, he uh, I think he fights it, loving the fact that he's doing what he's doing. So you heard Ron in that cut say that Landon Collins playing this new role allows Washington to have Landon, Cameron Curl, and Bobby McCain on the field at the same time. Uh, Ron on Tuesday on those three guys now having more defined roles as compared to what was the case earlier this season. The roles are defined. Um, you know, we know Cam is, 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 is a depth safety. Uh, we know Bobby's a good center fielder and communicator with those guys out there. Um, and we know Landon's an aggressive at, at, at the point of attack player. And so we can use all three of their skill sets. And, you know, the one that's kind of a little bit of a, capable of doing both really well, I think, is Cam, where I think, um, you know, Landon is at the point to me where – He's a guy that locks in and plays underneath, plays fast underneath. Uh, he makes the plays. You don't see a lot of run after catch in front of him. Uh, he's, he's a guy that anticipates well. So I, I like what he's doing for us. He's done a great job, and uh, you know he deserves a lot of credit. Yes, he does. I still can't get over that it took this long to have Landon Collins play this new role in which he's closer to the line of scrimmage. Everyone has known for years that Landon Collins is much better playing closer to the line of scrimmage than he is in pass coverage. Heck, that's why New York Giants general manager Dave Gettleman decided not to franchise tag Landon in the 2019 offseason. Gettleman correctly didn't want to pay big money to a box safety, but whatever. Uh, Landon's doing a nice job right now, and we are seeing a ton of Cameron Curl and Bobby McCain. We're seeing a lot of all three guys. Uh, Cameron Curl in the win over the Seahawks on Monday Night Football played on 100% of Washington's defensive snaps. Bobby McCain in the win over the Seahawks on Monday Night Football played on 100% of Washington's defensive snaps. You look at each guy over Washington's last six games, uh, each guy is playing a ton. Uh, Cameron Curl has played on at least 90% of Washington's defensive snaps in each of the last six games. Bobby McCain has played on 100% of Washington's defensive snaps in each of the team's last six games. So ultimately, what is the improvement of Washington's secondary most about? Some of these tactical changes or just improved communication? You know, just guys getting used to playing with each other. We have heard Ron talk incessantly about communication in the secondary, but justifiably so. Communication in the secondary matters so much. So what ultimately is the improvement of Washington's secondary most about? The tactical changes or improved communication? More from Ron on Tuesday. I think what's happened is, First of all, I think guys are now understanding, you know, how things fit in this defense. Something I've mentioned it last night in the post-game press conference was something that happened in the game was a little bit of a miscommunication. It was almost an anticipation. And really, 
we missed the opportunity and it was the big catch to lock it early in the first quarter. You know, we were anticipating, you know, the crossers, which we got, and we were expecting a certain technique to be played. We didn't play it. And because of it, they caught the ball on it. Come to the sidelines, they talked about it, they got it straightened out, and then they went out and made some plays. Um, you know, those are the tactical things that we have to be really good at and at the same time be able to communicate as well. If you watch it, the way it handled, two-thirds of it was done exactly the way you needed to. The one-third is what we missed. And, again, that went back to pure communication. Um, but the tactical aspect, you can see the guys getting it and understanding it. As long as we follow through with the communications, we're okay. Yes, you are. And right now, a Washington defense that had been horrendous is more than okay. It is, dare I say, good. And again, it's good despite being without Chase Young and Montez Sweat. All right, let's get to some non-Washington football team items on this So Wednesday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. It has been a great season for the Capitals so far, but it was not a great night for the Capitals on Tuesday night. In fact, Tuesday night was a disaster for the Caps. Now, it was a night that was looking like another great night for the Caps. They were playing at a Florida Panthers team that has been outstanding at home this season. And the Caps were leading in the third period 4-1. So, hey, up 4-1 in the third period at the Panthers. You're obviously feeling good about where you're at. Uh, the Caps seem to be on a one-way street to yet another victory this season. And then, as uh, I like to say, came the rest of the game. Then came the third period from hell. The Caps blew a 4-1 third period lead and fell to 14-4-5 with a 5-4 loss at the Panthers. Uh, The Caps entered games on Tuesday tied with the Toronto Maple Leafs atop the NHL standings at 33 points. The Caps now tied with the Maple Leafs and Panthers atop the NHL standings at 33 points. And the Panthers now are an NHL best 12-1-0 at home this season. Uh, There is no overstating how horrendous the Caps were in the third period on Tuesday night. The Caps lost the third period for nothing. The Caps in the third period gave up an even strength goal, a shorthanded goal, and two power play goals. But here's the ultimate stat. The Caps in the third period had just two shots on goal to the Panthers' 27. Yeah. Two shots on goal to the Panthers' 27. Uh, I have been a Caps fan since I was old enough to follow sports. I can't ever remember seeing something like that. A period in which the Caps or any NHL team got blasted like that in terms of shots on goal. Two shots on goal to the Panthers' 27. That is stunning. Uh, the Caps in the third period, per natural stat trick, had two five-on-five shot attempts to the Panthers' 23. Uh, Caps for the game had 27 shots on goal to the Panthers' 51. Yes, the Panthers finished the game with 51 shots on goal. And facing all 51 of those Panthers' shots on goal was Ilya Samsonov. Uh, he was the Caps' starting goaltender again, a six-time in seven games. So Samsonov very clearly now 
is the Caps' number one goaltender. And old Sammy on Tuesday night stopped him here 46 of the 51 shots on goal that he faced. Uh, some Sonoff per natural stat trick stopped just six of the 10 high danger shots on goal that he faced, stopped 22 of the 23 medium danger shots on goal that he faced, and stopped all 17 of the low danger shots on goal that he faced. Uh, Caps went 0-2 on the power play, just 2-4 on the penalty kill. Just a debacle of a night for the Caps. Head coach Peter LaViolette, as you might expect, not at all happy during his post-game session with reporters. We stopped playing. So that's two games in a row where we stopped playing in the third period. And if you don't uh, if you don't punch back, the only thing you're going to do is get punched, and we get punched for 20 minutes. So that's, that's on us. We, it's, we got nobody to blame. We leave here with a loss in the column, and you know, got to digest that for the next couple of days until we get back on the ice. But um, we just stopped playing. How about that from La Violette? We stopped playing. We got punched for 20 minutes. Uh, yes, you did. Yes, you did. You know, the Caps are having a really good season. I want to keep emphasizing that because it is true. Like, over the course of an 82-game NHL regular season, you're going to have some bad performances. And the Caps clearly had a bad performance on Tuesday night. Really, what it was was an atrocious performance in a third period on Tuesday night. It is, though, a bit frightening that something that bad is within the Caps. You know what I mean? Like, that the Caps are capable of that level of bad uh, is alarming to me. But I think it's important to keep in mind that the Caps are playing a bunch of young players. So, like, for instance, the Caps on Tuesday night got first period even strength goals from Connor McMichael and Beck Malenstein. Beck Malenstein became the seventh different Capitals rookie this season to score his first career regular season NHL goal. I mean, how about that stat? Seven different Capitals rookies have scored their first career NHL regular season goals this season. And all seven of these players have been drafted by the Caps. So it actually says a lot about the organization. But the fact that the Caps are playing all of these rookies tells you the nature of this season. The Caps have been ravaged by injury that the Caps are where they are, again, tied atop the NHL standing says a lot about the team. But, you know, at some point you do wonder if the Caps missing all of these key players is going to catch up with the team. And the Caps do continue to miss a bunch of key players. Defenseman Justin Schultz on Tuesday night did not play for a third consecutive game due to an upper body injury. TJ Oshie on Tuesday night did not play for a fifth consecutive game due to a lower body injury that was suffered in his return game from a 10-game absence that was caused by another lower body injury. Uh, Connor Sheary on Tuesday night did not play for a fifth consecutive game due to an upper body injury. Anthony Mantha is out indefinitely due to shoulder surgery. Nicholas Backstrom has yet to play this season as he undergoes ongoing rehabilitation on his hip. And despite all of that, the Caps are tied atop the NHL standings. But the Caps lost on Tuesday night and in horrific fashion. Uh, next up for the Caps, a four-game homestand. The uh, Caps will host the Chicago Blackhawks Thursday night at 7. So, uh, Virginia Tech football has its new head coach. He is Brent Pry. We got the announcement on Tuesday. Brent Pry. He has been pried away from Penn State. Uh, Brent Pry has spent the past eight seasons as defensive coordinator 
and linebackers coach at Penn State. Brent Pry has ties to Virginia Tech. Pry worked as a defensive graduate assistant for the Hokies from 1995 to 1997 under then head coach Frank Beamer and then defensive coordinator Bud Foster. Uh, Introductory press conference for Brent Pry as Hokies head coach Thursday morning at 9 in Blacksburg. Uh, The expectation is that Hokies interim head coach J.C. Price will be on Pry's staff. Look, the concern is that Brent Pry has never been a head coach at the FBS level, but the guy has done a tremendous job as Penn State defensive coordinator. Uh, Since his promotion from co-defensive coordinator to solo defensive coordinator in 2016, Penn State has posted three seasons, each with at least 11 wins, and four seasons, each with at least nine victories. Uh, Penn State this season is number 10 in the FBS in defensive efficiency per ESPN. So the Hokies are getting a guy in Brent Pry who knows defense, and that's a big deal, especially in today's high-octane offense environment in college football. What's going to matter more than anything for Brent Pry as tech head coach are two things. Uh, A, will he effectively recruit the region? This is a very fertile region in terms of football recruiting, you know, talking about the DMV and also the state of Virginia in general. So, you know, like the Norfolk region. And B, will Brent Pry fix Tech's offense, especially at quarterback? You know, what has happened with Virginia Tech at quarterback is not good. Uh, The mediocre quarterback play this season, the departure of Hendon Hooker, who transferred to Tennessee and has thrived at Tennessee this season. Who Brent Pry is going to have as his offensive coordinator is going to be really interesting. And hopefully we get more of a handle on that come that introductory press conference on Thursday morning. Uh, Brent Pry is 51. So, you know, he's not some young up and coming coach, but that doesn't mean that he can't or won't succeed as Hokies head coach. So, We'll see. I mean, this is not a sexy hire for Virginia Tech. This is not Lincoln Riley bolting Oklahoma for USC. This is not Brian Kelly bolting Notre Dame for LSU. But again, that doesn't mean that Brent Pry can't or won't succeed as Hokies head coach. You know, Mike Young was not a sexy hire as Hokies basketball head coach. And yet Mike Young has done a really good job as Hokies basketball head coach. To me, the hope, if you're a Hokies fan, is that Brent Pry is the Mike Young for Virginia Tech football, which truthfully uh, has been surpassed by Virginia Tech basketball in recent years. And that's why Brent Pry now is Virginia Tech's head coach in football. So December has begun, and with it is coming a lockout in Major League Baseball that has felt inevitable for months. The current collective bargaining agreement between MLB and the MLB Players Association is set to expire right before midnight on Wednesday night slash Thursday morning. So when the day of December 2nd begins, that's when a lockout is expected to be beginning. Uh, The two sides talking about MLB and the MLBPA cannot stand each other, and we're going to have a labor stoppage, maybe for a while. Uh, We'll see how long this thing lasts for. Uh, And so we've been seeing a lot of activity in MLB in recent weeks with this work stoppage looming. Now, we haven't had much activity from the two teams of our region, the Nationals and the Orioles, but we have had a lot of activity in Major League Baseball in recent weeks. We did have activity for the Nats and Orioles on Tuesday night. Uh, The deadline for MLB teams to tender contracts to arbitration-eligible players was on Tuesday night at 8. 
Uh, the Nats tendered contracts to most of their arbitration eligible players, including, yes, Juan Soto. Uh, Juan Soto was not non-tendered, uh, but also tendered contracts were pitchers like Joe Ross, Eric Fetty, and Austin Vogt. Uh, there had been some thought that one or more of those guys who I just mentioned would not be tendered, uh, would be non-tendered, but all three guys were tendered and presumably will be back with the Nats for the 2022 season. But the Nats did not tender contracts to three arbitration eligible players, relievers Wander Suero and Ryan Harper and minor league first baseman Mike Ford. And Suero and Harper are the guys who stand out. The Nationals pitching was horrendous in the 2021 season and ultimately Suero and Harper were a part of that. Now, Wander Suero was a workhorse for the Nats for four seasons, 2018 through 2021, but he had a really bad 2021 season. Uh, Wander Suero over 42 and two-thirds major league innings in the 2021 season had an ERA of 633 and a whip of 141. The Nats twice optioned Suero to AAA Rochester in the 2021 season. That's option Suero to Rochester on August 3rd, and then again on September 18th. In a lost season, for you as a veteran reliever to be optioned to AAA twice and in the period of a month and a half, uh, not good. That did not say a lot of good things about uh, where the Nats felt that Wander Suero was at. Ryan Harper was interesting in the 2021 season. He was initially great for the Nats. Ryan Harper through August 15th had an ERA of 0.79, but nearly every appearance came in a low leverage situation. Harper then got some chances in higher leverage situations, and things did not go so well. Uh, Ryan Harper over his final 15 games in the 2021 season had an ERA of 9.69. So Wander Suero, non-tendered. Ryan Harper, non-tendered. Also for the Nats on Tuesday night was them announcing agreement with a free agent acquisition. The Nats announced having agreed with free agent infielder Cesar Hernandez on a one-year contract. Uh, Cesar Hernandez, a name probably familiar to you if you're a Nats fan. Cesar Hernandez was with the Philadelphia Phillies for years. The 2022 season will be Hernandez's age 32 season. Uh, Cesar Hernandez has primarily been a second baseman, but he also has played shortstop and even third base. So this is the kind of guy who the Nats have needed, someone who can play multiple positions, especially in the infield. Now, Cesar Hernandez did not have a good 2021 season. Uh, He played for both the Cleveland Indians and Chicago White Sox in the 2021 season, played in 149 games, but over 637 plate appearances, the slash line was just a mere 232 batting average, a mere 308 on base percentage, and a mere 386 slugging percentage. He did hit a career best 21 home runs, but this is why you got to look at things beyond the traditional back of the baseball card stats. 21 home runs are nice, but the overall slugging percentage was just 386. So he hit some homers, but when it came to other extra base hits, uh, not so much. And the overall offensive output from Cesar Hernandez in the 2021 season was not good. He also struggled defensively last season. Cesar Hernandez in the 2021 season, over 1,227 innings at second base, totaled minus 11 defensive runs saved. And this was off a really good 2020 defensive season for Hernandez. In fact, Cesar Hernandez in the shortened 2020 season, over 503 and two-thirds innings at second base, had plus six defensive runs saved and actually won the Gold Glove Award for American League second baseman. So it's interesting now with the Nats in their infield because they very early in the offseason re-signed Alcides Escobar to a one-year contract. 
So you have Alcides Escobar. You now have Cesar Hernandez. You, of course, already had Luis Garcia. Uh, what is the thinking here? Are the Nats going to make Cesar Hernandez the team's everyday second baseman for next season and maybe move Luis Garcia to shortstop and Alcides Escobar to more of a super utility role, which I think would be ideal for Alcides Escobar? Uh, maybe you have Alcides as your starting shortstop, Luis as your starting second baseman, and Cesar Hernandez is your super utility infielder. Uh, you know, I mentioned that Cesar Hernandez has played some third base. Might Cesar Hernandez be used to push Carter Keboom for playing time at third base? Uh, so we'll see. As for the Orioles, uh, no real shockers for them in terms of the uh, deadline by which the team needed to tender contracts to arbitration eligible players. Uh, the O's actually agreed on deals with outfielder Anthony Santander and relievers Paul Fry and Jorge Lopez on 2022 contracts, avoiding arbitration. And the O's tendered 2022 contracts uh, to first baseman slash DH Trey Mancini, starter John Means, and reliever Tanner Scott. And before we call it a show, let us talk Georgetown basketball. Uh, the Hoyas on Tuesday night won. Uh, Hoyas improved to 3-3, three and three, a 91-83 win over Longwood at Capital One Arena. Georgetown was coming off a uh, rough go of it in the Paycom Wooden Legacy Tournament in Anaheim, California on Thanksgiving weekend. 73-56 loss to San Diego State in Anaheim on Thanksgiving night. Then a 77-74 loss to St. Joseph's in Anaheim on Friday night. Hoyas did get this win over Longwood, but the win wasn't easy. The game was a lot closer than it probably should have been. Hoyas deep into the second half, led by just one point at 67-66, did ultimately pull away for the victory. Hoyas defense had issues in this game. Hoyas allowed Longwood to go 9-24 on threes, 19 of 34 on twos, allowed Longwood to score 17 fast break points. Hoyas had just eight fast break points, and the Hoyas allowed Longwood's Deshaun Wade to go 5 of 8 on threes and finish with 21 points. Uh, Longwood went small, so the Hoyas went small, ended up not playing their bigs as much as head coach Patrick Ewing probably wanted to. Uh, the seven-foot big man Timothy Iguefe played for just eight minutes as a starter on Tuesday night. But the Hoyas were good offensively. I mean, again, the Hoyas won this game 91-83, 91 points for Georgetown on Tuesday night. You don't often see teams score 91 points in college basketball these days. Hoyas went 10-23 on threes, 27-33 of 33 on free throws, had 13 offensive rebounds to Longwood, 7. And what was really interesting about Georgetown on Tuesday night was this kid, Colin Holloway. Colin Holloway had played in just two of the Hoyas' previous five games this season, but Colin Holloway was tremendous off the bench on Tuesday night, 26 minutes off the bench, he went 2-2 two two on threes, 5-7 of seven on twos, and 7-7 seven of seven on free throws. Finished with 23 points and 4 rebounds, including 3 offensive rebounds. Great job by Colin Holloway. Also, great job by Caden Rice, the graduate transfer from the Citadel. 5-10 of 10 on threes. He finished with 15 points and 5 rebounds in just 21 minutes as a starter. Caden Rice, when he is on, is quite on. Caden uh, Rice in the loss to St. Joseph's in Anaheim on Friday night, 7 of 13 on threes, including 5 of 6 on threes in the second half. Caden Rice in an 83-65 blowout of Siena at Capital One Arena on November 19th, 7 of 10 
odd threes. So he already has had three games this season in which he has made at least five threes in each of those games. Uh, also, 6'5", five, five-star freshman Aminu Mohammed for Georgetown on Tuesday night. 101 on threes, four of nine on twos, just four of seven on free throws. He did have zero assists versus three turnovers, but he also had 15 points, 11 rebounds, and three steals in just 24 minutes as a starter. Next up for Georgetown is a good test. Hoyas at South Carolina Sunday afternoon at two in a Big East SEC matchup. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Thursday show, episode 199. We'll feature much more on the Washington football team as it on Wednesday is beginning the team's practice week for this Sunday afternoon's game at the Las Vegas Raiders at 4.05. No time to waste. Uh, this Washington football team week is moving quite quickly. Uh, also on Thursday's show, a post-game Wednesday night's games for the Wizards and Maryland basketball. Uh, the Wizards will host the Minnesota Timberwolves Wednesday night at 7. The Terrapins will host Virginia Tech Wednesday night at 7.15 in the Big Ten ACC Challenge. Have a great rest of your Wednesday, and I'll talk to you on Thursday. For every question, there's an answer. For every problem, there's a solution. For every Goliath, there's a David. And for every giant, there's a stone.